0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio
1: station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. (laughs) 3CR Breakfast. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: Alternative
0: news, analysis, and current pants. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am
3: late 30 am
4: Early
3: double. Wrap your
5: <laughs>
6: <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to Monday Breakfast here on 8:55am 3CR. This is the Monday Breakfast team. I'm James, joined by Grace and Rob. How was your weekend, guys? Good. How have you been, James? James has been a bit tired, <sighs> but James is happy enough. Um, my my big takeaway from the weekend is the game of the year in the AFL men's competition, mm-hmm. Friday night, Carlton and having a brain fade. Mm, this- Melbourne, Carlton and Melbourne, two-point win to Carlton. As an Essendon fan, I dislike Carlton greatly. But it was a beautiful win for the club and Ligon Street mm. went into meltdown. Yep. And I think that's good for the city. Wow, okay. No hoodlum no hoodluming, no no rioting, no breaking stuff. We condemn that. But it's good to see carton supporters up and about after thirty years of heartbreak. Wow. Um, that's that's my weekend takeaway. Wow. That's good. How about you, Rob?
7: <laughs> um yeah pretty busy weekends the highlight of mine was so i went to a on saturday i went to an all ages hardcore show hardcore Ooh. show which was a fundraiser for the maneki nico cat rescue shelter in preston that's beautiful um yeah really really beautiful time um terminal sleep was the headliner female female fronted hardcore band from melbourne um and yeah just stacked line up really cool time, really great to see um it was at the the gasometer, uh,
6: gasometer. The gaso, yeah
7: yeah uh, gaso. in, <laughs> in just just down the street, actually, and yeah, it was just a beautiful day for a gig, and yeah, really cool to see all ages hardcore like slowly what? coming back after
6: what does hardcore mean
7: it's short for hardcore punk
6: hardcore punk, yeah, right, gotcha. yeah,
7: so like I guess like the I don't know really, maybe the like a extreme end of punk music before it starts to almost become metal, yeah, right, intense, I think that could be wrong, but uh, at least that's how I view it, so yeah, really, really cool gig, um and great to have a good cause behind it punk
6: punk's scene is thriving, mhm, coming back,
7: thriving, yeah, good. um, good to have an all ages show after you know so many years
8: of
6: not having them, yeah, it's amazing, yeah, how about you, Grace?
8: Um, I did rotations yesterday, mm. for Patricia. Here, it's uh, my first time presenting alone. Actually,
6: well I haven't done that wow. before,
8: so I was actually very nervous because, yeah, one one is because sh- it was a show I haven't done before, and I didn't really, I didn't get to actually practice anything with it. So I just went with my guts and just listening back to the old shows to see how it's usually done, and yeah, it was. It was fun though. It was very fun. I'm glad that I get to put out songs that I love listening to, and also just giving a mix of like songs I've never heard of before, and I got to just know of. So yeah, it was fun. it was a fun stuff. Yeah, great. But other than that, I was just working as usual. I think it's a I think it's like a daily weekend kind of thing for me to work. Now it's just something I have to do. Kind of kind of avoid it. Work, but, yeah.
6: work, or study, work, or both. Ah, uh, both. Whoa.
8: Yeah, because um, obviously I'm graduating very, very soon, in about two months. It's crazy. Wow. So assignments Ooh. are piling up already. It's not too bad, to be honest, I guess, compared to my other semesters. Because I've taken my workload off a lot um since coming here. Mm. So, I mean, I only have three subjects left, so realistically, it's not too bad for me in a moment, so yeah, I think it's going well.
6: You're almost there.
8: Yeah, and I'm just enjoying myself and try to be as happy as possible.
6: (sighs) Yeah, enjoy the ride.
8: Yes, that's fine.
6: Enjoy the ride. We've got a pretty big show coming up for for all the listeners out there in listening land today. Mm -hmm. Four interviews in total today, a little Mm -hmm. bit longer Mm -hmm. form, so good for a long cup of tea, Mm -hmm. make it extra hot. Uh, First up, we've got a really great interview from a couple weeks ago on the show Think Again, which... We'd heard prior to this show, but from a few weeks ago. And that was when Jacques Boulet interviewed Lucinda Holdforth on her new book called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy, which is a really sexy title for someone who likes political science. And it talks a lot about vulnerability and that sort of fad in in thinking about ourselves and our identity and our virtues and then mm. the flip coin of vulnerability or resilience mm-hmm. flip side and how they've kind of become a bit trivialized very interesting so we've got that coming up and then what do we have rob um
7: i have uh, an interview which which uh aired on thursday breakfast with uh professor katarina tewa and ron bentes which they Sorry, Ray bante 's my mistake to and they 're discussing the colonial history of phosphate mining on Bernabin and the fight by Banbenarbens for reparations and an end to extraction. Wow, yeah
6: that 'll be good yeah it 's super interesting discussion that 'll be great then next up, Grace
8: yep, so next up will be me speaking to M Reitman, who is a writer from Burlo, Australia. They're also an editor Sir and sermisis and we're gonna be discussing on how does storytelling and knowledge transfer better help protect trans people.
6: Yeah, fantastic. Important.
8: Gonna yes. be looking at that. It's interesting stuff. And then Rob.
7: Yeah, I have an interview with uh Tara Sawamba, um, who is a lawyer from Qplus Law, q Law, which is um a free and safe peer-led legal service for LGBTQIA plus people across the state, which has just opened up at the Victorian Pride Centre. So we're mm. going to be going into, you know, how they can help people and, you know, legal issues for queer people across the state.
6: Fantastic. That's great. So before we jump into all those, we'll jump into a few news headlines to start off. Grace, would you like to go first?
8: Yep. So first up. uh, First First Nations teens have rise up as beer pie buddies as uh, cultural mentors to younger indigenous students so one of them is 12 year old Bejai Kani who is part of this program that's going to be mentoring young students and they are from Watchrop High School on the New New South Wales mid-north coast and basically they they are teaching like a cultural education kind of thing at the local primary schools they, and what they will be doing is where these students will be attending Beechwood and Huntington, Huntington Primary Schools on alternating weeks to facilitate different cultural ev- activities. About 20% of Valtropes high school students are Indigenous, according to their school's late, uh, latest annual report. Yep. So the aim was to help smaller smaller outlying primary schools with fewer opportunities for cultural education and at the same time as de- developing the primary school's uh, leadership skills at the same time. Oh, well, that's great. Yep. Sorry, just... Yep. And that's for the first headlines. The second one is Australia's first Indigenous rugby league player, leon Morgan, has died at age 85, mm. the former BIN Winger played three tests for Australia and twelve games for Queensland. He was also a player and coach for Wyndham Manly in the Brisbane competition. ARL Commission Chairman Peter Villandes says Morgan was a trailblazer like Arthur Beetson and Jonathan Turtson.
6: Ah, great. Rest in peace. Yep. And yeah, that's all for me. Great work. Uh, my my news headlines from about a week ago now, but uh, on the first revamped Monday breakfast, we interviewed an interview with a fellow named Neil Parra, who was planning at that stage to walk a thousand kilometres from Ballarat to Sydney to grant, uh, in the plight to grant permanent residency for himself and other people who sought asylum here in Australia, who had no right to work, no right to study. Um, and... Neil Parra has been granted um, permanent residency uh, since embarking on that walk, and he's finished it, and he's been granted permanent residency, which is really nice to see. Um, so he, him, his wife, and his three daughters uh, live in Ballarat, and now they're able to work and study and pursue their dreams, and they're very happy to contribute to Australia, and It was assessed on an individual basis, so there's everyone else in that predicament still up in limbo. But a little glimmer of hope and a nice news story. So there's that one.
8: Just, I just want to add on again. Sorry, in regards to the first headlines I mentioned, the cultural program that the indigenous primary school students have been doing, uh, in regards on how to throw traditional spears, and so they're just, wanting to pass on this local culture to the next generation. So yeah, that's one of the. That's basically the whole program. The young students are doing and help and helping to mentor the younger
6: indigenous students. Yeah, super important. Yep. Any from you, Rob?
7: Yeah, I have um, some analysis by the federal government, um, which has revealed it would cost as much as $387 $387 billion to replace Australia's retiring coal power stations with nuclear power. Mm. The figure uh, is a projected cost of replacing the output of closing coal stations with small... Modular react- reactors and is based on um, a proposition from the coalition, coalition originally. Mm. Um, so this works out to be twenty five thousand dollars from every single taxpayer
6: in <laughs> the country.
7: <laughs> How do you feel about nuclear? Rob, um, it's very expensive, and yeah, yeah. I th- I, th- I think it's a re- just a huge number, and it- it's almost as if like we shouldn't just use that we should just use that money for something else instead
6: yeah pump it into solar and wind and yeah molten salts and that's how i feel that, all that good stuff yeah i'm not a fan of nuclear <laughs> personally but yeah we'll see how we go yeah
7: i just thought it, it was a big figure and then i saw um mm. you know twenty five thousand dollars per taxpayer was, that's a lot of money <laughs> it's a lot of money just uh it's like doing a university degree or something just like that overnight
6: off you go we've got nuclear energy now (laughs) more risk yeah fantastic all right i think we'll jump into our first interview now uh this is lucinda holdforth interviewed by jacques boulet on her new book uh 21st
9: century virtues how they are failing our democracy Lucinda, you trace the origin of a new set of 21st century virtues to the much-followed Brené Brown, who loves the power of vulnerability. You even bought most of her books. So please share with our listeners what you think about her new commandments, as you call them.
10: (laughs) Well, Jacques, um, my professional work is as a speechwriter, and that means I, and a writer. So I notice words around the place and how they are playing out in our culture. And I noticed a few years ago a change in language that we were using.
5: Mm
10: -hmm. Um, And certain words started to be elevated, like vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, uh, my truth, Mm -hmm. which may or may not be the same as the truth. self-care, big one, humility and empathy. And what I noticed about these words is they weren't just being counted as sort of attributes amongst a range of virtues, but they had seemed to have become a new canon of virtues in and of themselves, proselytised mm-hmm. mm-hmm. everywhere from vice-chancellors at universities to school
4: principals to
10: uh, corporate leaders, Mm -hmm. some politicians, and more, and activists on the left as well. So I thought, well, where did these come from? And I did trace them back, the origins back, to what I think was a very influential TED Talk given in 2010 by Brene Brown, who's a very pleasant American sociologist. Uh, And she started that... um, TED talk by explaining that she'd noticed that she was living with the most obese, over medicated, um, anxious, addicted, and indebted cohort in American history. And she wanted to diagnose and solve this problem. And she said the problem of all these factors came down to a lack of connection. And that if we shared our vulnerability with each other, we would achieve connection. So she's written books called Daring Greatly, and her idea of daring greatly is, and I quote, we must dare to show up and be seen. Another one's called Dare to Lead, and the third one is called The Gifts of Imperfection, and and she prefaces that by saying, owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing we can ever do. Mm. (laughs) Mm. So what do we get if they're the virtues in the absence of some other virtues like integrity... Or truthfulness, honesty, trustworthiness, civic conscience, we get a set of virtues that privilege self before society mm-hmm. and feelings above facts and reality. Mm-hmm. And I am perfectly sure that that is not good for individuals and definitely not good for our democracy.
9: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty, not so much radical, but logical. <laughs> Well, it, that's what it seemed to mm-hmm. me but I can't tell you, Jacques, so many people
10: mm-hmm. love Brené Brown. They mm-hmm. do her training courses, she's mm-hmm. taught at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So it seemed quite daring to even propose that mm-hmm. the goddess Brené Brown might not be all right.
9: You well, and she has become a multimillionaire meanwhile, I have read recently. Of course. That may have helped as well. <laughs> uh, so I mentioned in the introductory salvo, you, you know, you start your book with which, you know, which, which resonated really a number of times in and with our own programs. So let me quote you. On page three to four, you write, and I quote you, The cult of the self becomes ideal father for the predations and profiteering of neoliberalism. The larger political risk is that these forces come together in the form of a right-wing political messiah, backed by unscrupulous business interests, uh, As a well-known exponent of the Australian political right the right wing would tell, please explain.
10: Yes, isn't it interesting? Um, the cult of the self This says we've moved to a state now where it's not just individualism in the sense of um, kind of the old liberal democratic idea that the individual is free, to express themselves and to make money and to succeed in society. Mm-hmm. This has become a very um, narrow idea of what the self uh, deserves. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And, the, and the self is vulnerable, needing a lot of self-care, needing a lot of self-attention.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: Now, um, what we see in the big corporations now is that they have enthusiastically adopted these virtues. And you have to ask yourself, why
5: mm-hmm. and
10: of course if they can see um there's a lot of money to be made out of helping people do their self care mm-hmm. uh and it appeals to young people, including the mm-hmm. you were asking me about the mm. um the impact of uh these virtues on the predations and profiteering mm. of neoliberalism exactly
5: mhm
10: and what I would say is. It's fascinating to see that these virtues of the self have been taken up so enthusiastically mm-hmm. by big companies, yep. and their interest i think lies in first of all selling products mm-hmm. so if we have a cult of the self and self care then they can they have a great deal of opportunities then mm-hmm. to sell that self care to us that's right um it's also, I think, because they want to appeal to young workers. Corporate head offices are full of ambitious 30-year-olds mm-hmm. who want to feel good about what they do, don't that's they? They right. certainly so do. They do. So they want to make money and feel good. And I was one of them, so I completely understand that.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
10: that's why we see the pride floats and the mental health days, Are You U OK? Day.
5: Mm-hmm. We see
10: a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion. We hear about welcoming the whole self to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of terms that are used now in these big corporations, which lead us to see them as progressive, working towards a better future, and aligning themselves with the positive values of modernity. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of, Of course... There is nothing wrong with doing those things, but only if they are taking care of good Mm governance, not ripping off their customers, not ripping off their suppliers, Mm -hmm. not outsourcing jobs and and gleefully making people people more precarious and anxious. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned Brene Brown's... um, diagnoses the problem, and over-medicated, indebted, anxious America and says the solution is vulnerability and connection. Mm -hmm. But other thinkers, like George Monbiot, have come up with a different problem Mm -hmm. and a different set of solutions. And that problem is neoliberalism itself, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you have a big, wide gap between the top 1% and the rest. Mm -hmm. In Australia, the Australia Institute said that 93% Mm of the economic benefits of the growth between 2009 and 2019, went to the top percent of earners. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at with a collapse of the commons, mm-hmm. decline in public health, decline in public education. So I see for big corporations, it's a great look over their strategy. Mm-hmm. Look over there at how good we are, what nice people we are. We mm-hmm. welcome authenticity and inclusion. We have, we are kind. We are good people. Meanwhile, the real problems are being ignored. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that when the Labour God's government came into power in Canberra, the first thing they had to do was set up an ICAC. Mm. And the second thing that happened was a Royal Commission discovered immensely terrible corruption in the debt yeah. Inquiry. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I... um, And, and the, what's the political influence? The political influence ultimately is that If we start losing sight of what matters in a democracy, probity, honesty, freedom of speech, um, accountability and and political transparency, then we become very vulnerable
5: Mm -hmm.
10: to the right-wing messiah, to the fraudster, to the snake oil salesman. Mm -hmm. And that's really the concern at the heart of my book.
9: Yeah, 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 and when Brennilden says that we should celebrate our vulnerability, she basically also is saying that we should celebrate the system uh, which we inhabit and which, in a way, makes us vulnerable. Absolutely,
10: it's mm. quite extraordinary, it's lot isn't lot of it? A
9: circularity there. There mm. is a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> my there is indeed.
10: My goodness, mm. exactly. Mm.
9: You're listening to Think Again 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. So today we're having a conversation with Lucinda Hulthworth about the overlaps and and convergences between her just published book about 21st century virtues and our own work and thinking at Think Again. So back to you, Lucinda. One of my bit noirs in this new virtuous vocabulary is self-care. At Borderlands we work a lot with social work students and I'm a sort of social worker myself from all the way way back. And on the practical placements they often have to deal and they have a requirement to think about the need for self-care and why that's important in their professional practice of caring for others. As I know that some of them are listening now as we are speaking, help me enlighten them.
10: Ah, uh, yes. Well, self-care is, self-care is, is, is not a bad uh, objective in itself. In fact, it's incumbent upon us as citizens, if we are privileged, as I am, to take care of ourselves mentally and physically and spiritually as best as we can mm-hmm. so that we can flourish properly as human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, that is nothing less than the sort of duty of a citizen in a community where we all kind of have to carry, play our part, carry our mm-hmm. load as best That's we right. can.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: But this new virtue, when self-care is elevated to, the, to an ideal, to a virtue in itself, mm-hmm. it leads me to ask this question. How much self-care is enough? Mm-hmm. Is there any end to self-care? Is there any point at all in which self-care becomes just plain old selfishness? Mm-hmm. And the other question I ask is, there are people, I live in Redfern in Sydney, there are people who will never self-care properly. They mm-hmm. can't. They have their life circumstances, their physical health, their economic circumstances mean that they will often engage in extremely counterproductive behaviours. Mm-hmm. So I've spent time in hospitals and around hospitals, and there's always some old guy sitting out in a wheelchair, scraggy, with some kind of mask over his face, who has a cigarette in his right hand now that is a doctor's nightmare mm. in in an era where you say that virtue relies on self care, then that guy just is automatically confined to the unvirtue column
5: exactly
10: and it in mm-hmm. that, it, it gives it gives health practitioners and others a right to um, well, I don't know whether I would say look down on them but certainly mentally consign them to the other column. And mm. I don't want to live in that society. I think, mm. it's, uh, I think it's wrong.
9: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would totally agree with you, particularly also <laughs> as a sociologist, which Bernice seems to be. It's a very strange kind of sociology, I must say. It, so, yeah, uh, I'm,
5: look, and
10: perhaps, you know, she has other thoughts on these things and that those sort of initial ideas mm-hmm. got so taken up. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for her, of course. No. Um, but I can speak for myself and mm. what what I see, and I you know I don't want to to tell people what to think. I just want to ask people to think about these things. Mm-hmm,
9: that's right. So we have done a few recent programs on class and its relevance in present day capitalist society, and I really like your take on the personal labels which now are being used to identify yourself. Could you again enlighten us a bit more about that?
10: Well, this is a really interesting development in the culture, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, When I was growing up, class was still an issue. Mm -hmm. I knew what class I was in. I was in the kind of lower middle class. I had an aspirational mother and class still mattered. We all knew what class meant. Mm -hmm. And it meant that if you were uh, in the working class or even an underclass, you were were disadvantaged and that that disadvantage would travel with you through life. Mm Mm-hmm now we 've seen there 's been a lot of good progress in understanding the sort of barriers to progress that people face and what to, what some call intersectional barriers. Mm-hmm, so you might mm-hmm. be from a working class family that's also a migrant family, you might be a person of color um, and and these things do compound there 's no question about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I can see the positives of people interested in identifying, you know, speaking proudly, there's a sort of movement to say, I'm proud of who I am, I'm proud I'm queer, I'm I'm a proud person of colour. I understand, I can I can sympathize with that position. Um but in the long run I, I feel that we must move past that and we mustn't lose sight of that class is still the major source of socioeconomic disadvantage and it's the most practical way politically to look at finding solutions if you are looking at the broad realms of class and what to do then you know you have to invest in a public health system and most importantly a public education system Mm -hmm. there's no getting around that so someone can call themselves uh, labels and that is yet again a personal choice and a sort of personal perspective on your position in the world mm-hmm. but most of us live <laughs> in a world of greater or lesser advantage
5: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
10: politically and for social change we must not lose sight of that
9: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i can i think i really would agree with quite a bit of that <laughs> and that uh, was it is all very confusing the way in which we want to honor people 's understanding of themselves and their place in uh, in real life daily institutionally, and on a global scale, it is really important to look at those really strong common uh, reasons or underlying kind of forces which keep us in our place, so to speak absolutely
10: yes mm. and yeah and i and i you know i was taken by um, the the phrase from a philosopher Soren Kierkegaard which he said mm-hmm. when he said when you label me you negate me
5: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. history
10: is full of occasions That's where right. people have been labeled
5: That's and the
10: labeling is then an argument for oppression, mm-hmm. for exclusion, for mm-hmm. rejection,
5: mm-hmm. and
10: those who know history know yes. about the Second World War, know what happened to the Jewish people mm-hmm. who were actually forcibly labelled yes. tattoos. That's right. Uh, can understand it, it can be understood why you would take a very cautious look at this Mm. idea of labelling as in itself an Mm. overwhelmingly good
9: thing. Yes, I would agree. And since we were talking about class just before, it's just a small step for us to widen the perspective to capitalism and the role neoliberalism has played in all of this. You refer to true believer American economist Martin Wolf. Uh, He wrote Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Oh, that's the noises of Sydney, intruding.
10: That is an aircraft, alas, Jacques. I'm sorry this (laughs) has been one of those interviews for you. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No worries. I can hear you
9: perfectly. So, Martin Wolf's crisis of democratic capitalism, what is his take on this? And what do you take from that, in addition to what you've already, already shared with us?
10: Well, it was really interesting to me because there's George Monbiot, he's you know a climate activist, he writes for The Guardian, he's your kind of classic lefty progressive. Mm. And he's very anxious about... Uh, he links in his writings the impact of capitalism, mm-hmm. obviously, neoliberalism on our environment. So mm-hmm. that's his worldview. Mm-hmm.
5: I'm mm-hmm. even
10: more interested when somebody who's a, a writer for the Financial Times, the great conservative
5: newspaper yes. of
10: London, Martin Wolf.
5: Yes.
10: Uh, you know, below, I worked in big companies... The chairs of very big Australian companies read Martin Wolf religiously,
5: mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh,
10: so this is not someone who's a darling of the left. It's Someone no, a darling of yes, they're right. <laughs> and he's written an enormous book called The yeah, Crisis five, of Democratic Capitalism. <laughs> yes, huge. And his fundamental point is that um, that this sort of illiberalism that has crept in, uh, it's it's fund where we where we have gotten to in our society in in uh uh just trying to remember his exact phrase but he basically said. That neoliberalism, that's right, he called it laissez-faire capitalism, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the same term, different language. He said it is fundamentally incompatible with liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a pretty big statement. Mm -hmm. I think that both he and George Monbiot are right. Mm -hmm. And I think we need a very, that is why I wanted to write this book. I wanted to say, let's have a look at this and Mm -hmm. see... People think that they're being virtuous. They've got all these lovely, kind, good virtues whilst we sleepwalk
6: mm-hmm. into
10: a really even darker era.
6: That was Lucinda Holdforth uh, talking about her book with Jacques Boulet from the Think Again show here on 3CR, uh, going by the title 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing our democracy. And now we'll jump to a song, uh, hopefully it help you reminisce about the weekend. This is Saturday night by No Fixed Address.
3: This is a bit of a heavy one. Score cool, Saturday night.
7: Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was Saturday night by no fixed address. Now we're going to move to play an interview from Thursday's breakfast show. Priya spoke with Professor Katarina Tewa and Itin Tarunga Ray Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction.
0: Just to start off, I'll get both of you to to introduce yourselves in your own voices uh, so listeners know who's speaking. So, Katerina, do you want to go first and then Ray?
3: Sure. Um, Kamna Māori, everyone, and Nisambula Vindaka. My name is Katerina Tewa. I'm a professor of Pacific Studies at the Australian National University. Um, I am of Banaban and Kitabas descent. and Fiji is my home, but I've been in Canberra for many years.
11: Thank you, and my name is uh Isintarunga Ray Bente and I am a uh third uh generation of Banabent uh born in Fiji. Uh I'm currently working in uh Rambi, uh doing a lot of uh voluntary service for my people. Uh this is my third year and uh yeah.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, Really appreciate being able to speak with you both, because I know that um, between you, there is a real wealth of knowledge, both about, um, you know, the historical side of climate colonialism and of displacement, but also around activism and organizing an international fora uh, for, you know, climate justice and for basically the self-determination of Bonobans. So, Katherine, I thought maybe we could begin by centering some of the significance of the ancestral lands and waters of Banabans and the integral importance of Banaba uh, for its people's heritage and identity. So could you begin by speaking a little bit to what this means to give listeners an idea of what's at stake in this renewed push for phosphate mining of the island that we're going to be discussing? And, Ray, feel free to chime in as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um I have been studying the history of Banaba, which is in the central Pacific, which is now uh, what is known as Kiribati, um, for about 25 years. Um, And I, I began doing this research because as a Banaban living in Fiji, part of a minority community, I wasn't quite sure who we were and where we came from and how we ended up being one of, you know, a few minority communities in Fiji. And so through the course of my research, both both at the master's level, the PhD level, and then later, as an academic, I started to understand um, the impact of eight decades of phosphate mining on Banaba, uh, but also began to understand it as a a place uh, that was very sacred and very important to the Banaban people who are now Spread across the islands of of Rambi, you know, mainly on Rambi, but then also um, caretakers living on Banaba, and then uh, uh, a Banaban diaspora that spreads across Fiji, Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the United States, and elsewhere. And even though uh, there's, we need to to take a proper census, but there's probably around 7,000 of us in total, people who can claim to be of, of, of Banaban descent we come from an island that is only 6 square kilometers so one of the smallest islands you could imagine in the pacific but something that was so incredibly significant to um the british empire uh in in the pacific and banabans had been living on banaba for thousands of years almost 3000 years if not longer um and It's a it's a pretty limited environment in terms of flora and fauna um, and quite dry weather where there would be periodic droughts. And it was quite a challenging environment. But in spite of that, Barnabans created this amazing, thriving, relatively peaceful culture that existed in the center of the Pacific and had kinship and links to uh, its closest neighbor, which is Nauru. Which is another maybe better known phosphate island. Um, and then also to islands uh, in the Gil, in the Gilbert Islands, which is now uh, a part of Kiribati, um, the Marshall Islands, Koshrai, Tuvalu and other islands. But because Barnabas quite, it's relatively isolated and far away from others. Um, they developed a really interesting, thriving culture that was this combination of fishing um and a connection to the ocean around it because there isn't much of a reef around banaba it's sort of like you walk to the edge and then boom you're in the deep ocean so they developed all of this amazing fishing techniques and then it was a historically a nesting place for birds so because it's one of the few islands where if you're flying across the ocean you need a place to rest banaba was one of those places and that's actually why there's so much rich phosphate on that island because bird droppings combined with like this marine uh, calcium phosphate base, which was also consisted of dead marine life, which fused together with the guano that was coming from the birds and created an incredibly rich phosphate island. The whole entire island is made out of phosphate, and it turns out it's quite high grade phosphate. But Barnabans understood that they belong to the rock, that is what the name Banapa means, that, that they were people of the rock. And in their um, uh, oral traditions, the rock actually comes from the sky. So you have like land that comes from the sky and land that comes from the sea and fuses together. So scientists will say, oh, it comes, you know, this comes from bird droppings from the sky. And Banabans will be like, well, we already know that from our oral um, traditions and our uh, our origin stories. And so Banabans were people of the rock, you know, they had an amazing culture, but they were left alone because no one, you know, who came across Banaba tried to claim it for uh, colonial empires until the phosphate was discovered. And then it became the center of an entire um, industry pretty much overnight. Mm. And it was Australians, New Zealanders, and British um, investors and agricultural fertilizer interests that came very hungrily looking for that phosphate and then the rest is history, um, I suppose.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ray, did you want to add anything uh, to that about the significance of Banaba as a, as a place and as a centre of heritage and identity?
11: Yeah, and I can uh, speak to, you know, the experience of a young person who's not been to banaba because uh, we are third generations of banabans So it was my great-grandmother, great-grand, uh, and granddad that, you know, uh that arrived in Fiji. So I'd be the fourth great-grandparents, dad. I'm the fourth, yeah, yes. fourth generation. Yes. So as a young person who's not been to Barnabé, but I've heard so much about Barnabé through all traditions because our ancestors and our people commemorate uh, and remember, uh you know, the first arrival of our people on Rambi Island on 15 December. 1945, and I grew up. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, learning our history through uh, the stories that our elders share during the commemoration. And every time uh, someone talks about Barnab, I get really hurt about what happened. And uh, which is why, for me as a young person, it's very important to uh, do as much as we can to ensure that you know the source of our identity, culture, heritage. Remains and remains untouched because of any further exploration and, uh, you know, uh, extraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've learned about what the 80 years of mining uh, are caused to our island. And any further, you know, remining of the island means that whatever was left is maybe less than 30%. I mean, we're, we're really struggling as young people. Uh, to ensure that, you know, our, our home island remains untouched, but yet we have a lot of aspiration to also one day, uh, you know, visit, uh, Banaba to make that connection.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that is such a important perspective to bring into this as well, because Ray, as you've spoken to, there has been this forced displacement of Banabans, um, you know, from what Katerina has described as you know, people uh, making a sense of place and a sense of home and interpreting the world uh, from this space that was created out of, you know, more than human relations uh, from the sea and from the sky and um, understanding the sense of place there, but having that be so severely disrupted through the the phosphate, phosphate mining industry. So, um, Katerina, uh, you know, as well as being part of the community of Bonnevans forced to make a home on Rambi Island after colonial displacement due to phosphate mining, as you've mentioned, you spent a significant amount of time dedicating your scholarship to critically analyzing these processes. And you touched on this a little bit in your first response, but can you tell us a bit more about some of the history of colonial extractive phosphate mining by companies from Australia, New Zealand and Britain and how this did lead to that forced displacement of Bonnevans?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there's quite a, a well-known story, um, I mean well-known in terms of people who, who study Barnaba about how Barnaba they found Barnabas, uh by analysing a piece of rock, quite a large rock that was propping up a door uh, at one and a half Macquarie Place in Sydney. It was a company door and this was a, you know, regular multinational company which had people prospecting all around the Pacific, mainly looking for guano. And somebody had picked up a rock and it was propping up the door. And one of the um, chemists from the company was like, they were running out of sources of of guano and phosphate. And they looked at that rock and they said, where's that rock from? Um, You know, it just had been propping up the door. People thought it was wood. And when they analyzed it, they found it was pure phosphate. And so they discovered very quickly that that rock was from Nauru and Nauru was German territory at the time. So they looked on a map and they went, what's the closest thing? And they found, they were like, amazing, this similar geological formation, 200, you know, kilometers or so from Nauru. And they Like the archives are terrible. They're like, get your guns, get on the boats and make a beeline for the island. Make sure you have your gun just in case the natives are stroppy. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's straight out of the colonial playbook. And so when they arrive on Banaba, just like every other island in the Pacific, except for maybe the ones who are, you know, savvy with the number of visitors who come, people were welcomed, people were hosted. You know, Banaba was on one of those islands where they had very good protocols and approaches for hosting visitors and looking after them and feeding them. And these guys, when they arrived, they, they didn't sit down and have a chat. Like they just went straight for the rocks and started like trying to work out chemically if this was going to be something valuable. And I've read all the letters, all the company correspondence and there's no way to sugarcoat it. As soon as they knew what was on that Island, they were like, how do we get rid of these people? They were like, they got to go. This whole thing is made out of phosphate. So, you know, no discussion of people and (laughs) belonging to land and home and the fact that villages were all over the island, which meant if you were going to dig, you're going to have to dig under people's homes, burial grounds, you know, Bunnibins bury their ancestors next to their homes. Um, The whole place was, you know, over 2000 years of, of Bonoban life as well as all the plants and animals and everything else. So there was this very consistent, like, how do we get rid of them? We got to get rid of them and then plant the British flag because it did not belong to anyone. And they just made it up on the spot. They created a law out of nothing, you know, had a piece of paper, got some men to put an X on it and and went from there. Um, so, and it's, you know, kind of well-documented like this process. The other interesting thing is that women had a much more, had more of a voice and more of a presence and more of a leadership on Banaba and they erased that immediately. Any other genders they didn't want to deal with, they just, the white men wanted to deal with the native men and they wanted to cut a deal. Um, so it really messed up a lot of gender relations that existed on the, on Banaba before that where everyone not only did they have a voice, but Banaba's is unusual in that every single person on Banaba, regardless of age, had access to land. Every single person, so a baby, a child, had access to land and had land that they, that they could call their own, which was marked by coconut trees. So the trees were as important as the land and the rocks you had to have the trees because that was which, which would show you the boundaries of each and it wasn't like property property in the you know in the western sense but it was quite this beautiful fluid sense of of kinship and relations and exchanges that was based on land and access to land um we're not trying to romanticize it but it functioned really well socially economically politically um etc so the the mining didn't just, you know, like they used dynamite, they blasted holes in the land, they started digging it up, there was like rocks going out full speed, but it changed the whole system of land tenure, which was actually very, very critical to people's sense of efficacy and agency and self-determination. Like when you talk about indigeneity and people talk about indig- indigeneity being based in land and relations to place, banabans have a one-to-one ratio you know like a one-to-one relationship with their lands and so uh the miners were like ah we got to get rid of this stuff this is too hard there's like children lining up here you know for us to get leases from them to access their land they didn't want to deal with children they didn't want to deal with you know they wanted a king they were like where's your king let's let's have the king and the king can sign off on everything so that that is kind of how it played out. And at one point, Bonabans said, we don't want to lease any more land. Like, we're done with this. And then they the they had the resident commissioner write a threat to the Bonabans. And they said, um, he said, you can choose life or you can choose death. Which one do you want? Give up your land and you can have life. If you don't, you are choosing death. We will take it from you. I think the words are, your land will be compulsorily acquired for the empire Mm. your land will be compulsorily acquired for the empire it was inked in writing and bonobans were you know they felt like they were being threatened obviously being threatened directly and so this was part of like the build-up of resistance amongst bonobans they were like these people are not asking us they're just taking the land you know mm-hmm. so it's was, it was pretty it was pretty bad stuff that went on um and that's how the the whole thing started to unfold Japanese targeted the island during World War II because it was a valuable mine a lot of Banabans were killed during that period a lot of workers who were Gilbertese and Tuvaluan they were also killed there was a massacre on the island um and so Banaba unfortunately becomes this kind of yeah this space of industry and of empire of intense colonialism, of luxury. You know, the the company lived in luxury and shipped in water from Melbourne, shipped in goose and duck and all kinds of fancy things for them to consume while they were digging up Barnabin land and pushing Barnabins out further and further until the war happened and then they shipped them off to Fiji. Um, So yeah, yeah, that's kind of how the industry played out.
7: That was Priya from Thursday's breakfast show speaking with Professor Katarina Tewa and Iten Turunga Ray Bantes. Uh, and they were discussing the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banabin and the fight by Banabins for repara- reparations and an end to extraction. Um, you can listen to the rest of that interview on the 3CR website and the final part will be played this coming Thursday on the breakfast show.
6: You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us
3: wherever you are. At home, work, driving,
6: on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath.
3: Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app.
7: October is the month for all your country and Americana good times. Asleep at the Wheel, Thornby Theatre with Summer Dean on the 13th. Melissa Carper, Brunswick Ballroom on the 16th. Willie Watson at the Mimo Music Hall on the 19th. Thornby Theatre on the 20th. And Menian Town Hall on the 21st. Jenny Don't and the Spurs. The Pinkstones and the Burge Band play Brunswick Ballroom on the 12th. And the Barwon Club Geelong on the 13th. All this and more this October. Love Police Supports 3CR.
0: Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. TransFamily runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter
4: we influenced by ZZ
8: You're listening to TCR eight five five AM. Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast. We, we we go into a conversation with Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast, speaking with Tanya De Jong about Driftwood: The Musical. The story follows the lives of renowned Austrian-Australian sculptor Carl Daldick and his artist-inventor partner Slawa Horowitz Daldick. set in pre-war Vienna. Slawa's in Ginny's invention of the foldable umbrella sparks an incredible chain of events, miraculously escaping the Holocaust and rebuilds their careers as artists in Melbourne. This story was adapted for the stage and is based on the original memoir by Iva de jong Let's tune in.
2: Is this a uh, a new production for Australia? Yes. Where, uh, can you tell us about how uh, it, uh, it came about, this production, at this time?
12: Yes, Um, so we started, so mum, my mother Eva de jong Duldig launched her memoir in 2017 and as a result of that uh, I read the book and I was completely blown away by a family's story. I mean I knew some of the story but I had no idea of the extent of the sacrifices, the losses, um, the way that art had helped my grandparents to survive and restart their lives in Australia in spite of the terrible trauma that they went through. And I read the book and I just thought, wow, wouldn't this be amazing to to be on stage or on film? And then because I'm an opera singer and a musician, I thought, well, I love musical theatre. And so I immediately contacted my friend Anthony Barnhill, who's the most exceptionally talented composer and musician and pianist and he started composing some songs for the show and of course now he's written the majority of the lyrics as well. And then we um had COVID and then that sort of delayed the production. We did a first run of the show last year, but it was entirely different to what it is now. And we commissioned Jane Bodie originally to write an original play, which was called Driftwood, and then Gary Abrahams, our director, has adapted Jane's play further and directed this this new version of Driftwood, the musical.
2: Yeah, it's quite amazing. The uh, For a person, uh, the, the level of musical... Um Mastery in this particular production is quite uh, gulps making the not just the uh, the singers who who are on stage for all the time and do an enormous amount of singing. I mean, you guys must go into training i I was so impressed <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we're training
12: all the time you know the the more that you perform and and you know tread the boards, uh, the more that you can keep your skills, you know, um, maintain and improve your skills all the time because, you know, we're working with an extraordinary group, extraordinary cast, including Anton Bereson as Carl, Bridget Costello is playing the role of Eva, Michaela Berger as Ralla and uh, Nelson Gardner playing various roles. And of course, I'm playing the role of my inspirational grandmother who invented the foldable umbrella. And we're working with an extraordinary creative team. So, we're constantly refining and developing our skills and working out what is the best way to tell this story. And as our director says, it's like creating a sculpture. You know, you start with a block of wood and then you chisel away at it and you keep on working on the work to make it better and better.
2: Yeah, well, that's exactly what you've done. Uh, The um, stage setting and uh, the way it moves through time without requiring uh, uh, changes to the set, except for the rather uh, clever, very clever device of the strip of uh, paper across the ceiling that uh, Mm allows you to do projections. That was a very clever idea.
12: Oh, well, thank you, yeah. I mean, we have an exceptional, you know, creative team, as I said, and wonderful set designer Jacob Batista and Justin Garden who's done these incredible projections, the wonderful lighting designer Harry Hogan and our costume designer Kim Bishop. Uh, just it's a, it's a dream team, you know, to work with these people and create a work of this substance and this originality, an Australian story, a true Australian story of real depth and this is what we need a lot more of in australia we need a lot more shows that are telling real stories and you know entertainment for entertainment's sake is wonderful you know who can take anything away from wonderful shows that you know are from overseas and that are glorious and have huge big budgets like phantom of the opera for example but there's a there's a real place for us to make these sorts of works, and then take them to the world and show people, you know, the depth of community and resilience and survival that underpins most people who live in Australia who are migrants. You know, this is a true migrant story.
2: What was it like to, I mean, this is actually a story about uh, three generations of women in your family uh your your grandmother your mother and then you um and it's interwoven together isn't it It, it's quite an extraordinary it must be quite an emotional experience for you
12: yeah i mean
2: it really is i
12: mean i'm wearing my grandmother's earrings in the show and i mean she was an inspirational person i mean the the Not only was she an incredible inventor of the umbrella, the foldable umbrella in Vienna in 1929, but she also invented and designed furniture and other things and she was a wonderful sculptor and artist as well as my grandfather was. And she lost a lot of her creative impulse after going through so much trauma and so much uncertainty. I mean, the show is called Driftwood because our family... My grandparents felt like they were like a piece of driftwood being tossed into the ocean to then land on a shore only to be swept out again, never really knowing where home was going to be for a number of years. And that was very destabilizing for her and she couldn't create work for, for many years. With my grandfather was really able to... His work was like his escape and it was how he was able to always see salvation, to get through everything. So it took my grandmother a long time to then come back to her work, but luckily she did, and she was able to create some more incredible works in her lifetime. But of course, the level of losses that my family experienced on all sides of our family—my, of course, my grandparents lost the majority of their families, you know, parents, brothers, sisters—you know, it's so tragic. Um, you know, even on my dad's side too, though we're not covering that story. That's a whole
5: other musical, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I'm not a great fan of musicals in a sense. I, I find them a bit tiresome because they seem to, uh, you know, there's a single idea and then they repeat the single idea over and over. But, of course, that's a rather a, a shallow way of looking at it. And I was um, really quite uh, taken by the... Uh, depth of the musicality, the music itself, because it's very evocative. And I was also really um, taken by the different voices and the mastery within those voices. And I was also really taken by the cleverness of the stage, staging, the the director's uh, approach to movement across stage. Very clever.
12: Yeah. Well, it's an amazing journey because the show covers three generations and Three Continents, and to create that with a single set is, well, not really, because he, he's able to use his extraordinary creative imagination to create multiple different scenarios quite brilliantly. And uh, yeah, Gary Abrahams is an absolute genius, and uh, we're very lucky to be working with him.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And uh, also the uh, place, um, and like you said, you know, it's all very well to have the ma- a major uh, theatre like the Princess showing the Phantom of the Opera, but it's a fa- fabulous uh, chapel on chapel is such an intimate uh, place to be working.
12: Oh, it certainly is.
2: It's lovely and that's, you know,
12: we could have put this show in a larger theatre, but we really feel like some of the people in the audience last night and certainly last season as well, describe it as stepping on a train with us and being on that journey and they just cannot get off until they find out what happened. And I think people feel that sense of immediacy with their story and they feel part of the family. And it's important to say that this is not just my family's story. I mean, this is a story of all our collective stories, of our collective sacrifice and suffering as human beings. It's also a story, a very important story of how dangerous it is when we discriminate against any group of people. And that has always led to atrocities throughout human history. And it's so important that we do never discriminate, that we speak out, that we never remain silent, silent, sorry, in the face of any type of discrimination.
2: Well, it plays till uh, March 20 here and then it moves on to Sydney, doesn't it?
12: Yes, that's right. Yeah,
2: very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh, we're very,
12: you know, we're very um, grateful to be working with this team. We're very grateful um, for the incredible response of the audiences. We've had two out of two standing ovations so far and last year, of course, we completely sold out our season in Melbourne. And now we're taking the show to Sydney as, as well from the 24th of May until the 18th of June. And then we're taking Gary and Anthony and working with American performers in New York to to set this up um, in New York and see what sort of interest we can get from the theatre owners and investors in New
2: York. Wow, that's really exciting. Um, I also... <laughs> I also have to t- doff my hat to the incredible publicist you've got or publicity team uh, because I'll, I'll direct people to the fact that they can go to the website and then they can have a dinner date and then a theatre experience. It's all beautifully uh, worked out. <laughs>
12: it is. It's so nice. Well, no, that's my my work.
2: <laughs> oh, well, you um, are so... a master.
12: <laughs> no, no, just not just me but my work with my, my wonderful team too. And the Chapel Street Precinct, it's so nice to have, you know, four restaurants, really good restaurants who are helping promote this and they're providing beautiful dinner packages and, you know, particularly some beautiful ones like Borscht, Vodka and Cheers, the Polish restaurant which provided dumplings last night at our opening and it's just beautiful having that support from the community.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much for talking to me.
12: No, that's a pleasure and please, everyone, go to driftwoodthemusical.com.au and book your tickets before they sell out.
8: And that was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast chatting with Tanya de Jean, who plays her grandmother in Truth for the Musical, a local true account of remarkable people surviving through art upon a viral in Australia from war Europe. Actually, unfortunately, this show is not running anymore, but I just got to know a bit about the story of this musical for this. For this. And the musical is actually finished for a season this year but it's okay they probably might come back next year so yeah just look forward to that so yeah that's all from me
7: now we're going to move to speak to Tara Swumba a lawyer from Plus Law which is a free and safe peer legal service for LGBTQI plus people across the state hi Tara how's it going
1: hi good morning thanks for having me
7: it's good to have you here um let's just Let's just go over the first most basic question. What can Q plus law do for LGBTQI plus people across the state?
1: Um, Well, basically anything. (laughs) So uh, at the moment um, we're providing a very open service. Um, The service has been running for about two and a bit months now. So we're still kind of finding our feet. Um, It's community led. uh, So... Part of that is, well, we need to work out what the legal demand is from the community. Um, So we're not turning anyone away uh, with any type of problem. Um, The service itself is a generalist service, so we'll do anything from sort of family law, um, family violence law, through to tenancy issues, um, employment law. Um, The only thing we don't really have eyes on is immigration law. But we're still working with some service partners to try and make um, some safe referrals. So if someone comes to our service with an immigration issue, Mm -hmm. we can try and um, refer them to a service that is uh, queer inclusive and queer friendly. So yeah, that was a really long (laughs) answer to a short question. But um, if you're queer and you think you may have a legal problem, um, come and knock on our door and have a chat with us and then we will take the next steps from there.
7: Awesome. Um, And you you mentioned that Keepless Law is, you know, pretty new and just setting up. I wanted to ask how it sort of came about.
1: Yeah, so for a while now I think a bunch of community legal uh, centres had um, sort of queer services and I think uh, after a while it just became apparent that the demand was more than what, you know, one or two people at different community legal centres could handle. Um, So as part of their uh, I think it was like a queer inclusion project. The Vic government um, announced that it would be uh, funding a queer-specific legal service. Um, so Fitzroy Legal Service uh, won the tender to create Q Plus Law, um, and then that's sort of what came with our inception. And uh, yeah, we've been running for a little while now.
7: Mm, mm, sure. Um, I was wondering if you can just sort of paint a picture of what it was like um I am a queer person but I've never had to luckily had to like navigate my way through the legal system. Can you just mm. paint a picture of what it what it's generally like or what you're hearing about what it's like for LGBTQIA+ people to access the legal system across the state?
1: Yeah, well, uh queer people are the least likely um to engage in any type of legal services. Uh so I think there's an apprehension in the community. Um That probably comes from a variety of different things. I would sort of speculate that um, when you're queer, you tend to not really trust or enjoy institutions, especially ones that have impacted you negatively for so many years. Um, So in creating, like, a a safe entry-level point for people to access justice, we're hoping that people will come, make contact with us, and then we can start to assist them from there. So um, I think at the moment, a lot of queer people, they don't really want to educate someone about basic um, blocks of their identity. Uh, Going through a legal issue is one of the most stressful things anyone can do in their life. Mm. Uh, So if you have... Um, domestic violence is a great example if you're experiencing domestic violence it's a very complicated um, I guess emotional experience for most people Mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do is talk to a lawyer who doesn't understand that you're queer and might not understand that you're um, you know different genders or you use different pronouns. So then you've got this added trauma Mm. of somebody saying, oh, you know, but you're a man, your partner's a man, is that your brother? A lot of confusion. So I think um, having a lawyer who just understands off the bat exactly what's going on with you and and what your dynamic might be like just means that you don't have that additional hurdle of, well, is this going to be a really awkward conversation with a lawyer?
7: Yeah, right. And I guess going on from that, You know, not, it's not only lawyers that, you know, perpetuate this you know, gender binary and use such like gendered language, but it's also the actual writing of the law and policy itself. I I guess I just wanted to ask how you how Cupid's law helps people navigate that.
1: Yeah, so that one's a little bit more complicated. Um, You're correct. I think a lot of laws were written from a heteronormative perspective. I think they're getting better and they're trying to include, um, I guess, less... Uh, nuclear families, um, like so there's been some amendments to the, the Family Law Act, which has um, included sort of specific situations where if you're a lesbian couple, for example, um, and you've conceived via uh, IVF, um, you're now your parental rights are now protected under the Family Law Act. The problem is not a lot of queer people can afford the privilege of going through formal IVF. So if you haven't done a formal IVF process, um, your parental rights aren't as clear under the Act. So I think that there's this gap where, for me, um, queerness is kind of defined by what it isn't. So how can you write laws for a group of people that are, by definition, just not? Something mm.
5: Does that make sense? Yep. It's
1: like, yeah, so I think queerness is just, it's just not heteronormativity. <laughs> so trying to include all different kinds of relationships I think becomes very difficult um, in the family law space. Mm. But, you know, that's a problem for us. That's not a problem for the client. Um, and we sort of will do what we can and work within the sensibilities of the law. And I feel like we're finding that um, people in the judicial system are, are sort of understanding the problematic areas in some of the legislation and have been a little bit more forgiving as well. So um, sort of working in that space to make sure it's not the client's problem.
7: Yeah, yeah. And what do you think has been the driving force around some of that attitude starting to shift?
1: I think just, like, people want to help other people. I I really believe that. Um, I think that finding that a population of people aren't included in some basic protections um, and understanding the impact that that has, has probably been enough of a motivation for people to say, well, things kind of have to change. The thing with the law is that it changes very, very slowly over a long period of time. Um, when I was like a first year uni student, I think I thought mm. that sucked and it was mm. lame and it wasn't good enough. Mm. But now, with a bit of experience, I think it needs to change a bit slowly. So um, people will build up trust slowly. Um, they can adjust to how the laws change and, and you get that kind of baseline consistency. So, yeah, I, it is frustrating. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say it's not frustrating, mm. but I think it is getting better. And this is a step that we've seen towards sort of heading in that right place.
7: Yeah, that's great. Um, I wanted to also just ask about family violence issues. Do you think law and policy has kind of managed to wrap its head around queer people
1: in respect to family violence issues? I think it's getting better in family violence generally too. So um, maybe the last sort of like five to ten years – They've taken it much more seriously Mm. um, and then you are seeing that flow and effect to queer relationships. You still have some barriers, you know, like um, if one partner is maybe physically larger and seen as like more masculine or stereotypically powerful, they might still have the same prejudices where, you know, Mm. it's not easy to see that person as an affected family member, for example, but the space is changing overall. Um, so I think there are some improvements. Mm. Things could always be better, but um, I guess that's why you come to a service where you can advocate for, um, well, we can advocate for your rights. And if you are the affected family member in a family violence situation, we'll always take that seriously, regardless of mm. you know how you present or what the relationship dynamic is. Um, yeah, I think from the outside, people can make all kinds of assessments of a relationship, but the only people that know what a relationship is like at the two people in it,
7: yeah, sure, and do you get it do you get a lot of i guess like when you're actually in a courtroom with you know like say like a judge for example do you do they i don't know seem kind of perplexed or kind of confused about what is no, happening no,
1: no, I think that the magistrates that I've been fortunate enough to appear in front of who do family violence um are very gentle mm. um it's just, you know, to get to that space where a relationship has escalated, for lack of a better word, um, into where you're needing protection orders in court, um, I think people understanding how emotionally intense that would be, mm. um, and also how vulnerable the other person is too. So my experience with family violence has, has been pr- pretty gentle um, there's some court support workers not all of them are queer facing but you know if um, we can make referrals to like uh, queer space is one of our um, sort of stakeholder uh, relationship mm. um, and they provide counseling so we can provide that extra support mm. but no I think people will um, people take family violence very seriously now which they I don't think they did sort of 10 years ago, Um, and, yeah, the attitudes have definitely shifted. I feel Mm. like we we know a lot more about that space now.
7: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Can you just also talk more about who else you partner with, say if, you know, like a client needs more support in one area? Who else do you refer people to?
1: Yeah, so we have – Some like sort of private firms that we're kind of working with at the moment um, who can assist with, uh, a good example is um, if you're going through a separation and there's a financial settlement, um, that's not usually the type of work a community legal centre will undertake, uh, but we could refer you to um, like private partners that we know um, and then you can get that assistance sort of that way. Um, So, yeah, it really depends on what the... Mm. The person has come with. So discrimination is a good example. If um, we assess a discrimination issue and it's potentially not a legal issue, but you need some counselling and support, then we'd make a referral to Queer Space um, or uh, Q Life or something like that. Um, then that service will contact the client so they're not having to run around and try and find help in the time where they're maybe most vulnerable and need the most support um so that's the type of service that we'd supply in that kind of situation
7: yeah awesome that's really beautiful um i just wanted to ask one final question yeah um this one's just a little bit more personal i just wanted to ask what it sort of means to you to be working in a you know like a a legal service like Q plus Law. Uh,
1: yeah, I think it means a lot. Like as a um, when I was going through law school, I knew I wanted to help people, but I was also one of the only like visibly queer people in my degree, so I didn't really know where I fit in the institution and what type of mm. work I wanted to do. Um, when the opportunity came up to work in a space like this. Like, why wouldn't I take it? It's, you know, I get to work with um, members of my community who are vulnerable and going through stuff. I get to feel connected to community in a really um, important way. Sorry. It, it's it's like, <laughs> it's, it means, yeah, it means a lot to me. Um, and it's like, I've never worked at a workplace where I haven't been like misgendered or um, yeah, everyone's queer. It's really easy to talk to my coworkers. We're a small team of six and we're all really, really close. Um yeah, it's just great to feel like I can make a difference in a way that's very personal and, and important.
7: Mm. Mm, that's really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Tara. Um, that's Tara Swumba from Q Plus Law, which, uh, as I said before, is a free and safe peer-led legal service for LGBTQIA plus people across the state. Um, you can find them at the Victorian Pride Centre in St Kilda. Or you can always just call them up or reach them online.
1: Yeah, so we've got a number. If um, you want to give us a call, at zero three nine nine six eight one zero zero two. Um If you Google QPUSLaw, we'll come up with all of our email addresses and stuff. I won't um, say all of the yeah. <laughs> numbers and digits yeah. on here. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity. Or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter.
0: Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
6: We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
8: You're listening to 3CRA 55PM 5, 5 and we are done and for the show for today for breakfast. How are we all feeling?
6: Good. Good. Smash that last interview, Rob. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really powerful Rob. interview.
8: Yes, it really was. And
6: what are you going to be doing for the rest of the week? For me, I have no plans. (laughs) How good does that sound? It's okay. I can do whatever I want within reason. So, open open skies. Mm -hmm. How about you, Rob?
7: Yeah, pretty much the same. No plans. I am looking forward to this little bout of heat that we're having. Mm. I'm looking forward to that. Leaving... I think it's meant to just drop on Wednesday. It's meant to like go to, you know, actual normal spring weather for
3: yeah, September.
8: But it was quite warm the past few days. It just, but it just suddenly got a bit chilly yesterday yeah. night and this morning, but it's been pretty warm and I mm. just hope it continues to be honest because I do be having to bring out a jacket in the morning when I just want to come out in tops.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yesterday was a yeah. belter of a day. Yeah. Yes, oh. it
8: was. It's it's good
7: but also very um difficult working outside. Like it's nice when I'm not working, but when I am working it's very sweaty.
8: Mm-hmm. Anyway,
7: that's that's my
8: week. Mm-hmm. How about you guys? Well, I've just going on with life, I guess for the rest of a little humming week. I definitely do have uh stuff to do, but yeah, looking forward to that I'm just gonna have fun with my friends as well.
6: So Beautiful. Yeah. But No not
8: worries. Yeah, so well, yeah, that's all for the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in. You're listening to 3CRA55AM.